the last time we were together, we briefly looked at God's heavenly council, his court, or his assembly. And we acknowledged that God really doesn't need the help of a council or assembly to carry out his divine plan. But he chooses to do so. He doesn't... uh, He chooses to use the uh, created beings, and I use the term created beings, uh, spiritual beings, in a broad term here. Uh, Next time I get together, we're going to be more specific. We'll talk about angels in particular. But um, uh, his uh, spiritual beings, to help him administer um, his domain um, and to help carry out his uh, uh, edicts and, and to exhibit his authority. My parting comments were that God uses this counsel as a template, an example, a, a pattern for how God plans to u- utilize humans to execute his divine plan on earth. And this divine plan is often referred to as the kingdom of God. And he will use humans to help spread the word of the gospel and expand the kingdom of God. And all of this began in the book of Genesis, in the Garden of Eden. So that's where we're going to take up uh, today's lesson. The first thing most people think about when we mention the Garden of Eden, we think, well, that's the home of Adam and Eve. And that uh, is related to us in Genesis 2, 15 through 25. But the last time I left you uh, with the thought that God might also have established Um, heaven on earth there in the garden. For wherever God is, that is where heaven is also. And where he is, more than likely, his spiritual beings are with him as well, his family. Eden was um, God's home, and we get this idea from Ezekiel. Um, Ezekiel 28.13 says that uh, the Eden was the garden of God. Now Ezekiel 28-13 and that whole section in there is talking about the king of Tyre. And, and God is bringing judgment on the king of Tyre. But if you read that, you also see in that section allusions to Satan and judgment being placed upon Satan. But I'll just read the first part of the verse. It says, you were in Eden, the garden of God. And then, um, but we know the king of Tyre wasn't in Eden. So he's referring here to Satan and uh, dealing with judgment upon Satan as well. And then later on in Ezekiel 31, verses 8 through 9, it says, the cedars in God's garden could not match it. The junipers could not compare with its branches and the plain trees could not match its branches. No tree in God's garden could compare with it in its beauty. I made it beautiful with the multitudes of its branches and all the trees of Eden, which were in the garden of God, were jealous of it. He's talking here about uh, uh, Egypt and he was saying how uh, through God's hand, that Egypt became a glorious country. And um, and it was all due to God's uh, 
can that Nietzsche was able to exhibit the beauty that God wanted it to behold. And so we see here twice the reference that the garden was the home of God at this time. So if this was God's home, and this is where he was conducting business on earth, this was where he would conduct what we would refer to as his family business. And that business was domain or rule, authority. He was establishing the creation plan from this location. And where God is, his family, the created spiritual beings or council was probably with him as well. So I'm just going to offer a reminder of who this God is that we're worshiping. Who this God is that created the garden and who created the universe. We worship a holy, holy, holy God who's living from eternity past and all eternity future. Our God is one, yet he has three persons. God the Father, who is totally God. God the Son, who is totally God. And God the Holy Spirit, who is also totally God. We worship, there are three persons, but only one God. One person is no more God than the other two. So I remind you of these things for what I'm about to say with the next passage. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Genesis 1, 26. This God that I just described is making a pronouncement. Very familiar passage. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every crawling thing that crawls on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. There are two popular, maybe there's more than two, but there are two popular points of view dealing with this passage. I will offer you both points of view and leave you to contemplate which position you find more compatible with the biblical teachings. Good men uh, have fallen on both sides of this argument, but there are good men that takes both positions. So um, I'm not going to take a position on either one. I'll let you decide for yourself. The first argument is that God, in verse 26, is declaring his intentions to create man. He's announcing it. He's making a proclamation. He's making this pronouncement to the other two members of the Godhead. 
That's a very simple argument. That's the first argument. The second point of view is a little bit more complicated, so bear with me as I try to share with you that point of view. According to this argument, in verse 26, God makes an announcement, and this is what I'm going to do, he says. Mankind will be created. But the question here, according to this argument, is who's he making this declaration to? If God is in the Garden of Eden before the creation of man, this kind of limits his audience considerably. This argument holds that God is addressing his created spiritual beings, his heavenly counsel. The people that espouse this argument don't think he's making this declaration to the other members of the Trinity. For they argue this, as I said a few moments ago, when we worship one God in three persons, they would argue that if he is one God and each person is fully God, how can one of these persons know something the other two don't already know? So let me illustrate it. Maybe it'll make it more clear. If I say to you, let's get pizza, I'm making an announcement, I'm making a declaration here. But note that with this announcement, God actually doesn't include the group in bringing about his decision. Unlike other divine counsel sessions, such as when God decided to deal with King Ahab, the members of God's counsel doesn't participate in this decision. When humankind is created in the next verse, in verse 27, God is the only one creating. The creation of humanity is something God handled by himself. So going back to my pizza analogy, if I followed my announcement by driving everyone here over to Tecumseh to Sal's Pizza, and I end up paying for the whole thing, then I would be doing all the work. And that's what we see happening here with God's announcement of creating humankind. It only makes sense that God would be the only one creating humans. The created divine beings of his counsel don't have that kind of power. In verse 27, humans are created in God's image. It says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. So this argument asks, what happened to the word our image from verse 26? The exchange between our image and his image in verses 26 and 27 is interesting. According to this argument, let us make mankind in our image means that God and the counsel he is talking to share something in common. And whatever that commonality is, it will also be shared by humans. 
once God creates them. This argument does not say that God, man, and spiritual beings are the same. But there is a common attribute that God has, and that he has passed that on to the spiritual beings and to man at his creation. That something is summed up in the phrase, image of God. Some commentators think it's better translated to be that God created humans as his image. Well, those are the two arguments. They both start off at the same place. And then the question is, who's God talking to? Who's he making the announcement to? And then they kind of end up at the same place, that God created uh, man uh, and created him in his own image. The question is, uh, who is he talking to? And to uh, what is this thing that they have in common um, that he's about ready to give to man? So any thoughts or questions? I, I've given two arguments here. Um, somebody wants to defend one or the other or not or come up with a third argument? There is one thing I yeah right, but there is one element that you might be able to. I, it's just one element; it's not the whole thing. But the idea that God gave liberty to man and God gave liberty to the angels—both of them chose badly. They both rebelled against God. Um, that might have been one part of that element in the image of God, because God has the freedom to do, choose to use man or choose to use the uh, angels. But um, that may have been just part of that image of God he's referring to. Thank you. Any other thoughts? about the image of God here. To be human, because he says he's going to create man in the image of God. So to be human is to be God's imager. We are God's representatives, to speak, so to speak. Much like an ambassador is a representative of the President or the United States in a foreign land. The image of God isn't an ability given to us by God. He might give uh, 
brother Wade the ability to run in the Boston Marathon, but you lose that ability if he gets cancer in a leg and he has to have a leg removed. So it's something more than just an ability that God has granted to man. It's an attribute. Every human from conception to death will always be human and always be God's imager. This is why human life is so sacred. We saw in the previous lesson that God shares his authority with his divine beings. He does the same thing with humans on earth. God is the high king of all things, both visible and invisible. He rules. God is sovereign over all things. But he shares that rule with his family in the spiritual world and in the human world as well. We're here to participate in God's holy plan to make the world all that he wants it to be and to enjoy it with him forever. Eventually, God showed us how we could do that. Jesus is the ultimate example of representing God. Um, Ken, could you look up Colossians 1.15? And uh, Bill, would you look up Hebrews 1.3? Montreux, would you look up 2 Corinthians 3.18? Jesus is the example that we should be following. God provided us, and this helps us understand the image of God better when we reflect upon who Jesus is. Colossians 1.15. One, three. He is radiant with his glory and the exact representation of his nature, and upon all things by the word of his power. Okay. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. We are to imitate Jesus. For that reason, Romans 8 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Second Corinthians. And we along with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the So we see here that Christ is our example, that we should conform to be more like him, to be the image of God uh, that God had, uh, originally intended us to be. That's the example that we should follow. So hopefully you start to see a little bit of a bigger picture here. God created spiritual beings to help administer uh, his divine plan. And because he, had, he, he didn't have to, but he chose to do that. 
And the same thing he's doing with humans. He's working with humans to help execute his divine plan, not because he has to, because he chose to do it that way. So humans were basically God's counsel on earth. We were made to live in God's presence along with his other heavenly family. We were made to enjoy him and serve him forever. Originally, all of this was to take place on earth in the Garden of Eden. And it will again during the final restoration in Revelation 21 through 22. Again, we see God returning with his host, we see a new heaven and a new earth. We see a new Jerusalem coming down. And once again, we're reunited with the heavenly uh, beings and the earthly beings uh, on a new earth, the way it was originally intended to be. <coughs> so you might say that Eden was where heaven and earth intersected. God's divine creation and earthly humanity occupied the same spot at the beginning and will occupy a similar spot at the end when Christ returns. However, God recognized that Adam and Eve were incapable of undertaking such a gargantuan task themselves. So back in Genesis uh, chapter 1, verse 28, Ethan, do you have that? Genesis 1, 28. When God, when God blessed them, when God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God wanted Adam and Eve to have children to aid in the administration of his, God's kingdom. However, as you know, Adam and Eve and their offspring failed, and humanity sinned. Had they not sinned, the earth would have gradually been transformed into a global Eden. We would have been, we would have had everlasting life on the perfect earth, living with God and his spiritual family, just as we look forward to in Revelations 21 and 22. But because God so loved humanity, he had already a plan of salvation in place. This does not take him by surprise. But the rest of humanity from the point of forward was destined to follow in Adam and Eve's footsteps. We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. And without God's intervention, we deserve death. However, the idea of God wanting to join his divine family to be part of the council and live in his presence helps us begin to understand some of the interesting things that the Bible says. It explains why the Bible refers to believers as sons of God or children of God. John 1.12 But as many as received him, to them gave the power to become the sons of God, 
even to them that believe in his name. Galatians 3.26 for, for ye are all children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Understanding this concept of being part of the divine administration of God helps explain why believers are described as being adopted into the family of God. Galatians 4, 5 through 6. To redeem them that they were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because we are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son unto your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. It explains as well why we are said to be heirs of God's and his kingdom. Titus 3.7 says that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now, the term error here is not something you did wrong. It's uh, meaning that uh, you are in line of inheritance. Um, uh, so being part of God's family, you would inherit um, the blessings of his, of his kingdom. It explains why he has promised to share the rule of nations with us. In Revelations 2.26, And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. So as we move forward through this life, we are actually moving back towards Eden. As we move forward, expecting Revelation 21 and 22 to happen, it's going to be even better, I believe, than what we left in Eden. But it's modeled on the same principle. We were left Eden, but we're heading back towards Eden, at least those who have faith in Jesus Christ. Heaven will return to earth. And that's what we'll be doing in, in the afterlife. We'll be ruling. We'll be ruling in the new global Eden. Everlasting life is not about sitting on clouds and strumming harps 24-7. God has tasks for us to do. We have things to do, jobs to do uh, in this new heaven, this new earth. The coming Eden, if you will. And before we're done with this study, I'm going to touch base on heaven and hell and angels next time. And so we'll talk a little bit, maybe, what's involved with the heaven, uh, what we'll be doing there. <clears throat> this is all about discovering and enjoying the unblemished creation and its incredible fullness alongside God alongside our Savior, Jesus Christ, and our fellow image bearers, both human and supernatural. So why does being an image bearer of God matter? Well, here's some practical thoughts along that line. So if you wake up each morning and spend time in the Word and time in prayer, 
uh, you'll begin to internalize the fact that we are God's agents. We are, we are God's ambassadors, if you will. We are his imagers. And that means that every decision we make every day matters. If you're representing God every place and every decision you're making, it matters what those decisions are. It matters uh, how you act because you are an image bearer of God. Christians can fulfill God's plan with the help of the Holy Spirit. We are here to spread the goodness of life with God and tell people who need the gospel how they can enjoy that life as well. Think of all the people that you've interacted with in your life. I was doing that just the other day. People that I came across and only maybe met them once or twice or just in passing. What kind of impression did I leave with them? There's only two impressions, really. Either they saw what it was like uh, to have a life with God, or they saw my life without God. So that matters that you're an image bearer. And what contact you make with anybody, are you reflecting God in that contact? The second thing that matters is that the knowledge that all humans are God's imagers should also make us see human life for the sacred thing that it is. We said earlier that because we are image bearers of God, our life is sacred from conception to death. Not just Christians, but all humans are image bearers. Now this goes beyond ethical issues dealing with life and death. For instance, racism is, has no place in God's world. No matter what we look like, we are all image bearers of God. Injustice is incompatible with representing God as his image bearer. The abuse of power, either at home or at work or in government, is ungodly. It's not how God dealt with his children in the Garden of Eden. So it has no place in how we deal with fellow image bearers. Lastly, representing God means every job that honors him is a spiritual calling. God doesn't view people in the ministry as more holy than anybody else just because of their job description. God cares about how each of us represents him where we are, where he's placed us. We are his image bearers. We either stand against the darkness of this world, sharing the light of Christ, or we don't. Remember, the opportunity doesn't need to be spectacular. It just has to be taken advantage of. Any thoughts or comments or questions? We're finished early today. What do you think? Maybe you're God entails.
Somebody once said to me, Presbyterians only get excited because there's a stick of dynamite underneath their seat. Sometimes I wonder if Reformed Baptists aren't the same way. Any thoughts, comments? Uh, takes on a new light each day if you get up and think that I'm an image bearer of God and the decisions I make will reflect that either in a positive light or negative light. So next week um, Pastor uh, will have Tim uh, Kuhn I think will be here um, giving his testimony during this hour He'll be preaching um, two services next week. <clears throat> so I'll be back the following week, um, and we'll be talking about angels that week. So think about anything you want to discuss in that area. Unseen realities. Well, we're about eight minutes early here, so don't go downstairs for a while because they're still having class down there. Thanks for your attention. Um, Ken, would you close in prayer, please?